It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. My name is Michelle Scharf. And I am Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, today I'm really excited to have a friend of mine who uh, her home and my home are within maybe a block or so of each other. Oh, wow. Though she currently now does not live in that home. This is uh, Kimberly Kemp Montier. Kimberly, thank you for joining us all the way from Tennessee uh, while Michelle and I sit here in Utah in our studio with our producer, Kellyanne. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. It was an unexpected invitation. Well, we're glad to have you. Michelle and I have both known of you and the great work you do in the the greater widow world, both virtually and through conferences you hold and things. But let me just back up to how I know you and how our homes are so close, even though it's not the home you you currently own and live in. Um, Kimberly grew up with several daughters that live in the same neighborhood where, or the same area where I grew up. I'm a little older than her daughters, but my little sister is friends with her daughters. Oh, And um, was friends with her daughters at the time Kimberly um, lost her husband and joined the widow world. And my sister obviously was the daughter of a widow. We lost our father. And so there was kind of that tender connection from a younger age with these young girls, which I didn't really know my sister's friends super close because I had already moved out. But fast forward a decade or two, and the home my husband and I bought with the mini farm is the one that's right by Kimberly's home from, uh, you know, for a couple of decades. And I became very close friends with Kimberly's other daughter, who was then married with her first baby or two, and we lived in the same neighborhood. And so I actually got to know Kimberly more through Kirsten, who is my dear friend and and now has four kids. But just, Kimberly, thank you for joining us. It's It's been an interesting connection my family's had with yours, where your children, me and my siblings, both grew up with widowed mothers that are wonderful, amazing women. And now to be myself a a widow, to know your children as grown, beautiful women that have just, I mean, they're movers and shakers and, and many with children of their own. But let's talk for a minute. Let us get to know you. Can you introduce us, your journey, your background to when you lived in that home that's so close to mine and... Let's kind of set the scene a little bit, and then we'll get into your your story, your journey, and especially everything you have to share with us on resilience. Absolutely. Thank you for the invitation to do that. I actually grew up in upstate New York, Ithaca, New York. When I was 16, my parents moved to Logan, Utah. My father was older in life. I found out at my mother's funeral that I was uh, coined the Berkeley bonus. I came a little later in everybody's <laughs> life. <laughs> and um, my dad was had done a sabbatic leave from Cornell University to Berkeley. And while there, they found out on their way, on their drive back home to New York, that my mother was expecting a child. So uh, my siblings apparently loved that because they stopped every 10 minutes for treats at gas stations. Perfect. Thanks, Mom. Minutes, but, <laughs> you know, exactly. So anyway, when I was 16, 
we moved to Logan, Utah, and you would think that moving in your junior year would be really hard, but for me, it ended up being a wonderful blessing, and I went to, after graduation from high school, I attended a young single adult ward, so to speak, uh, at the time, and I saw this really, um, well, actually, we were at a softball game, and I was playing catcher, and I loved playing softball, and this kid was out in the outfield, and he threw the ball in, and I believe that I caught the ball and got the runner out, which was impressive. This kid with red hair in the outfield, and we ended up being in the same circle and dating and just fell in love with this kid named Chris Kemp, and we ended up getting married the following year, a week after my 19th birthday, and when he so finished young. school at Utah State, <laughs> yep, really young. And now I'm grateful for that because then I got more time with him, but um, you don't know that. I love that you met at the softball game and that you made that great first impression by catching the ball. Good job. Way to show up. (laughs) Way to show up. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. yeah, So you married young and and in kind of those college years and started your family. And we, yep. And we started our family, Courtney, who's friends with their sister, Christy and After he finished school, we chose to go to graduate school, which took us to Boston. And after that, we lived in the Boston area for about five years. And then we lived in New York City area and then moved to California. And unexpected to us, we ended up uh, moving back to Utah. And so that was our quick, in a nutshell, how we ended up living in North Ogden. We made that move in 1997. So I didn't realize that you hadn't gotten there until then, because like I said, with, with Courtney and Christy being younger than me, I was done with high school by the time they got to high school and you live right by our high school. So you had gotten there just mm-hmm. right before I graduated and took off. I, I guess in my mind, I thought you'd always been there. Yeah, no. Um, so 1997, so... did you, how many children did you have at that point? How old are the kids? Um, how does life progress yeah. and, and of course lead to Chris's illness? So. I'm going to back up a little bit. We really loved our time exploring the world together and raising our family in various different places and just had garnered so many relationships and friends through that. And so moving back to Utah was actually a little bit challenging for us emotionally, but my father was getting older. I'd lived away for so many years. It was a blessing to be able to go back. And he had suffered from dementia, and I was glad to be able to help. And he did pass away about 18 months after we had moved there, April 2nd of 99. And then 11 months to the day, Chris went in for some surgery. He had been diagnosed with severe alternative colitis. Courtney was probably about two months old. So we'd been married a little over two years at that time. And I didn't think at any point in time, you know, this is a man who I have colonoscopies every year. I thought if anybody's not going to get colon cancer, it's him. I didn't realize that colitis like that would turn into cancer. I just couldn't, nobody had said that to us. So in any case, he had surgery performed to remove the colon because he was so sick. And I could go into more detail on that, but we'll condense. And so March 2nd of 2000, The doctor came out of surgery and said, we've sent samples in the biopsy, but his colon had ruptured. He 
had been on bowel rest, and if he hadn't, he probably would have died on the tape. Oh, my goodness. So you said... Sorry, you said the diagnosis of the the original ulcerative colitis was when Courtney was a baby, your first child? Yeah. So something Mm -hmm. you lived with your whole marriage, not, but, but if anything, Mm -hmm. thinking that's great preventive care um, in terms of for those colonoscopies and things to help. So shortly after losing Mm -hmm. your father, your husband's diagnosed with colon cancer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was a little girl, I was really... (laughs) fascinated by the idea of what would my life be like in the year 2000? And I had figured out that I was going to turn 38 years old that year. And I thought, well, I'll probably be married, have kids. It's going to be a great year. Mm. And for me, the year 2000 seemed to be the year that never ended. And it was probably the hardest year of my life. And from the time I met Chris Kemp and fell in love with him, I was always afraid of losing him. I I just was, in my mind, I was always thinking, okay, what would happen if he died? What would I do? Where would I go? How would I handle that? And I didn't talk about it obsessively, but I thought about it really? quite often. And yes, I did. And so I found it really interesting that... You know, I'm 37 years old, hadn't had my birthday yet, but here I am beginning the year 2000 with this. And it was um, indescribable. (laughs) So when I hear about somebody going through that, and if I hear about somebody who's gone through a sudden death, I kind of look to that day because it was just so unexpected. I thought this colectomy would solve all of our health issues, you know, we were going to come out okay. But instead, the results were stage four colon cancer. And we just kind of told everybody around us, we know the reality, but if you can't come into this hospital room with a smile on your face, we believe in miracles, and that's what we're hoping for. So we need you to have that kind of attitude when you're around us. How was that? How did that work out? Were people able to comply with that and and join you in that search for the miracle and the positivity? Yes, I would say leading up to that, I had nurses telling me things like, you need to prepare for, you need to talk about whether or not you're going to get remarried. You need to talk about how you want to handle things when he's not there for your children's milestones. And I just looked at that nurse and I feel bad for her now. She was a lovely person, but I kind of let her have it in terms of, do not talk to me about that. (laughs) And I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was in denial. I just needed people around me to focus on anything that was possible. And I knew that anything was possible, but, and for me, this was a deeply spiritual experience. So I'm going to make a lot of spiritual references and, um, and for some, that will be relatable. For others, it won't. But it was my experience. So what else would you like to know? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to know. You know, obviously, we're here. We're talking about resilience. And Michelle and I always use the word relentless in front of resilience because, unfortunately, you don't get to just be resilient for a day and check it off the list. 
It sounds like it was a relentless year. You said 2000 was the year that didn't end. Um, I believe that's not the year your husband passed away, if I'm not wrong. Can you tell us how did you get through? What did resilience look like to you as you remember in that year of the diagnosis? Let's maybe talk through how did you face day to day? You've got four young children. Your husband's dying, except you want to hopefully believe he's, you know, I, I love it. Positivity, hope, possibilities. Can you talk about resilience in that stage of things? Well, obviously, when you first receive news like that, there is some denial that goes on, but you are just taken to your knees. And I do remember vividly stirring something on the stove when my kids are sitting at the bar in our home waiting for dinner or whatever, and we're just And I have tears streaming down my face and they'll ask me a question and I quickly wipe my cheeks and tears away and turn around and answer them very calmly and then turn back around and tears start streaming down my face again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I really wanted to be uh, resilient for them. I wanted my children to have as normal a life as they could have. Also being real with them, but not having them living a life of trauma for the rest of their lives. So we did all sorts of things. We chose to go on trips. We went to Disneyland that following November. We just tried to make as many memories as we could as a family. And we prayed a lot. And all of those friends that we had created across the United States all those many years, we called on them. Uh, whether they were members of our faith or of other faiths, my husband loved the fact that he was on prayer rolls of churches of all faiths across the country because of dear friends that joined us in that hope for the blessings that we needed to get through this experience. I and love we that. surely did have that. I mm-hmm. love so much the thought of, um, I'm just picturing in my mind like a map. And a map of these people and mm-hmm. all these different places you've lived and, and people you've met joining you in faith and hope and, and optimism. And and at the same time, I love what you said about being resilient and real. And I think that, I mean, that could be like its own tangent, how the importance of you're strong for your kids, you're going to wipe away the tears, you're going to put your best face forward, and you're going to experience the fact that the tears are running down your face because this is difficult. I, I love that you... It wasn't one or the other. It was both. It was resilient and real, creating memories, but seeking a miracle, but not sitting back and just assuming the miracle will come, spending that quality time together. There's so many things there. I love that. It's just another example of and. And. I think that that's the biggest thing I learned in my husband's cancer journey is that, especially in the moment of his death, but even before that, um, I learned that there were so many hands there was devastation and loss and trauma and sadness and all of those things and And. there were beautiful moments filled with deep tender beautiful moments of love and connection it's and it's and it's both all right we're going to take a break kimberly and come back and talk about um we kind of go from stage of life to stage of life and where resilience comes and grows and how we come and grow into that we'll be right back
Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Let's pick up where we left off. You're creating these memories. You're you're praying and uniting your faith with this wonderful support group. I like to think of it as the safety net of our friends and our family and those who support us in our difficult times. Can you then walk us through the real path as you're being faithful and looking for a miracle, creating these memories? Walk us through 2000, 2001, 2002. Where, where does this journey go? Well, that's a lot of years ago. <laughs> um, in some ways, it feels like it's yesterday. Sure. And and in other ways, thankfully, it's not as intensely painful to look at time actually is my friend. So yeah. one of the things that happened was that during his initial surgery, the surgeon had created an avenue for Chris to be able to have additional surgeries that would make his life so that he didn't have to have a colostomy bag. So we went through a number of surgeries and actually like a month after his initial diagnosis, he went out for a walk with his dad and he really hit a wall. Like he was a very fit person. He exercised all the time. The outside of him looked very healthy. The inside of him was anything but. But I think that his healthiness, his fitness, helped him in this cancer journey. But on this particular day that he really just wanted to be strong, he actually got too tired. And that kind of spiraled into his almost dying. Mm. And he, he stopped eating. We thought, and I was like, you cannot die now. We're only a month, six weeks into this. We haven't even begun to fight. And the doctor put him on something called TPN. And I ended up having to learn how to feed my husband every night with this bag of nutrition. And it was miraculous. And it did bring him back. And then he had subsequent surgeries. Then he lost his job. And Uh there was a large layoff at the company where he worked of hundreds of people. And his department was one of those. And so we had some, you know, Cobra and so forth, but then I had to go back to work. And I felt a little bit resentful because we put all of our eggs in this basket. And we did that as a leap of faith. And I just wondered, 
how is this fair you know, yeah. um, at the time? And yet I also knew in the same breath of saying that, that my faith had carried me so far. And I knew that it would carry me that much further. And it did. And miracles happened. And I landed in just the right places for me. I ended up working at a doctor's office and I was an appointment center and I was surrounded by wonderful people that were very supportive. One of them being a manager that really wanted to empower women in going back to school. And so I ended up working with her and I would catch a bus where I worked in Ogden and it would take me up to Weber State because I didn't have time to like park the car and walk to a class. So I, I arranged to be able to take a class during my lunch hour and I did not know how to ride a public bus. I actually prayed about it and I said, please help people come in my path that will help me. I went to the bus station, I'll never forget this, and I was looking at the little papers that they have and I had no idea what I should look for. And one of the, a bus driver, it was a woman, and she looked at me and said, it looks like you need some help. And I said, I do, I'm trying to get from here to there. I don't know what to look for. And she said, oh, this is where you need to go. This is what, here's the paper. It'll be really easy. This is what you need to do. And I said, well, thank you so much for being here. She said, I'm so glad I was because I normally, I'm not here this time of day. So I'm glad I was today for mm-hmm. you. That's beautiful. And then I, the first time I went on the bus, I sat next to a woman and I felt like, you know, I was going to kindergarten on the bus for the first time. And I checked up a conversation with her and I said, I'm going to school. <laughs> she said, so am I. And I said, well, this is the class I'm taking. She said, oh, I'm taking the same class. I said, I have no idea where it is. May I follow you? And she said, absolutely. And so this wonderful woman was right there for me. And all along the way, my experience was that when I would ask the Lord to guide and direct my path, that's exactly what he did. And so as much as I felt like, oh, this isn't fair, (laughs) you know, how am I going to do this? The answers always came Mm -hmm. in the time that I needed it. I love that. And in the ways that you needed it, in the specific personalized ways. When did you lose Chris? How long did he fight the cancer? Can you walk us through maybe his passing and what resilience started to look like in surviving his loss? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, the reason I brought up work in school is because I was in school full time at that point in time and working full time. And so this was basically the summer, spring and summer of 2004. And um, Chris had just been an inspiration to all that knew him for the way that he dealt with cancer and chose to live his life and with resiliency. Um, And yes, even relentless resiliency, Hmm. uh, determined to live a full life and live with cancer. We even chose to not use that word battle. We, We chose to use the word live, living with cancer, because um, 
for us in our journey, the battle felt almost like just this fighting thing. And yes, and I respect anybody that uses that terminology. Our choice was just more one of we're going to continue living. And this is just one aspect of our lives. Which can I pause right there? Sorry, that's incredible resilience to be able to take the circumstance you're in and not let that define you. Because so many of us will say, I am a widow. Mm-hmm. I am a this, mm-hmm. or, or this circumstance is mine. I'm, I have to battle the cancer. I have to, um, and, and like you said, there's respect for that because it is a battle. We're not, we're not diminishing yeah. that. But I love that you're saying no. we have to, we're going to live with, with cancer, maybe with unemployment, maybe mm-hmm. with other bumps along the road. We're going to continue living with whatever it is. I think that's huge in resilience. It almost feels like it was second nature to your faith walk that because of the the path you're on, that you could find God, you could find hope, you could find the answers as they came when you needed them. That gave you the power to say, we're then going to live with, well, I guess in this case, cancer. I think that's inspiring right right there. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Sorry to interrupt. I was just like, wait a sec, that's resilience. Let me, (laughs) let me, let me just ponder that for a minute. Living with the cancer and continuing to live and inspire others. Such an outward mindset. It seems your family has always had connecting with other people, uh, relying on other people, having that two way street of support with those other people in your life. I see that as this common thread um, through what Chris's illness, which of course is before I ever even knew you. Mm Mm-hmm. And if I may say, we were just surrounded by wonderful people as well. And another young family on the other end of our street, they, nine months into Chris's cancer journey, they began a cancer journey. Also, young mom, we're the same ages, you know, and four kids just like us. And so we were kind of the bookends of that street. And both of our spouses passed away and both of us widowed. And although our journeys were slightly different, we maintained that close relationship to this day and a determination to be resilient. But also our neighborhood just took us under their wings and they did quiet acts of service, huge acts of service so often. I just have story upon story upon story that there isn't time for but I'm deeply grateful for the numerous people that have just walked into my life and been literal angels in front of me, helping me get through all of these experiences. We just don't get through this stuff alone. We need to take a break. When we come back, I I hear you uh, ready to tell us about moving this story forward. So we're going to take a quick break and, and we'll resume with that. back. Okay, so what were you going to tell us? I was just going to go to the day that we went to the doctor and we were told that there's nothing more that can be done. And that was how many, the end of June. So how many months had that been? So if we go back to some of those subsequent surgeries, like his initial surgery was in March. He had a surgery, I think the following September. And we found at that 
time that there were additional tumors. And so it was discouraging. But the doctor came out and said, honestly, I never thought in a million years that we'd be here doing this. I gave Chris six months and that wow. was it. So wait, so, that first yeah. surgery was March of 2000, and now you're in 2004 mm-hmm. at this last appointment where they're saying there's nothing more, the, the significant right. appointment where they're giving you nothing more. So four years, years. Yeah. four years. When they gave him six yeah. months, wow. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. now they're telling so, you it is six months, which is, of course, well, just a guess <laughs> on their part. Sure. Yeah, and actually, they Chris had been part of a clinical trial that was a miracle all on its own, the timing of that. And we just had come to the point where the drug was no longer working. And so it wasn't that we were given a diagnosis of six months. It was simply to say, there's nothing more we can do. And actually, you probably have maybe on the outset two months. And so... I remember driving home from that appointment with a lot of despair and there were a lot of tears and hugs and he was a man six feet tall, you know, normally 160 to 75 to 80 pounds, you know, now just uh, a mere shadow of himself, probably weighing about 112 pounds. Wow. And that's the ravages of cancer for many, and he just couldn't eat, but he was given a blessing by a neighbor, and every year the Kemp family would get together on July 4th, and a neighbor had come by on, like, July 1st or something, and to visit and brought a warm loaf of bread, and it was so kind, and and Chris had asked him for a blessing, and our neighbor gave him a blessing, and In that, I remember the words were used that you will have a window of wellness. And we felt like Heavenly Father was so kind, and we didn't know what that meant. But Chris felt strong enough to go to our July 4th family reunion in Bear Lake, where before we thought that wouldn't be possible. And so we attended that and had an opportunity to be with everybody and There was one sister that wasn't able to be there because she had a complicated pregnancy, and so we missed her. But I know there were compensatory blessings with that, which I can tell another time. But in any case, we enjoyed that. He ate at the lake, and he gained like six pounds in the weekend, you know, and just felt great. And we came home, but progressively he declined, and he he passed away on July 27th, 2004. Oh, and my goodness. I didn't realize how quickly he would go. But the morning of July 27th, not well. And we took him in the car to the doctor's office. And the doctor just explained that his kidneys were now shutting down. And Chris was really not even speaking at that point, but he was sitting there. But I knew that he was done, and the doctor knew that, too. Like, he did not want to perform any measures to, you know, it was done. And so, basically, we went home. We said goodbye to all of the loving, caring people at the doctor's office, and we went home, and we said goodbye to people. 
people in the neighborhood came over. I assumed that we would have, you know, another week or two, but actually he passed away around 515 that night. That very day. So, wow. <clears throat> that wow. very day. Wow. And okay. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna need another episode because this is now 19 years ago, and I know, and Michelle knows, of the 19 years of great work you have done, not only to help yourself survive widowhood and live as a mm-hmm. widow, but to give so many of the rest of us hope and insight and connection and compassion. So we may have to do a part two on your journey through serving others and, and building yeah, these connections. Yeah, I think we got to bring her back on but because I, we haven't even really I know. hit the tip of the iceberg. It, but I love this. I do too. I, I have to say that moment of saying goodbye when you walk out, you're telling your story and it just brings up so much for me. Uh, we went in, our last appointment was on our anniversary and we went into the doctor and he he was doing fine, but he was having some problems and they ran a, a quick x-ray and they discovered that John and I, you know, it's funny because I forget about this. It's a weird moment that keeps kind of getting deleted in my memory, but certain things will trigger the memory. He got diagnosed that day with uh, multiple lung tumors. Oh, wow. And so... He sat us down and he said, I wouldn't treat these tumors because this is a much more um, comfortable way to die. If one of these, uh, sorry, not tumors, lung clots. Um, and, And he said, it's a much more comfortable way to go if one of these clots in your lungs just goes. And, um, and so they said, we are putting you on hospice. My husband just kept refusing it. He said, we're putting you on hospice. We're releasing you from care today. And um, and then how long did he still And live? he said, you know, it, it could be six months. It could be a year. But you do need to go on hospice now. And, and it could be any time. It could be in an hour. It could be. We don't really know. How long was it in reality? In reality, it was July 18th. So it wasn't too much longer that um, he finished up his obligations and his work and his things. And it wasn't long before he ended up in bed and then died 10 days later after kind of being in that coma state. But it's so interesting because you said we said goodbye to all of the people in the office. And that moment is an odd moment because you just get told that news and you're trying to process it as you're saying goodbye. And there was one caretaker, her name was Wendy up at Huntsman, and my husband just loved her. And when we walked out of the room, she came up to him and just gave him the biggest hug and started crying. And that's the moment that I knew, oh, shoot, we're not coming back. We're done here. And this means he's actually going to die now. And somehow I never really <laughs> put that all together until that moment. That defining moment. So it's really interesting, your story. I, And it's one of the great things and why we need to bring you back of having the Facebook group that you started because it provides so much support for people who are just new to this world. Because until you do it, until you lose a spouse, you cannot imagine what 
that life is like walking. And even that if path. you do imagine, you don't really know. No, you don't yeah. know, right? It's one of those things that you can't grasp, really grasp. until it happens. Kim, can you tell us? I, I mean, obviously, we've, we're hoping you'll you'll join us for another episode uh, in the near future to continue this journey. But can you tell us the day that Chris's journey here on Earth was done? You've got this wonderful family, these wonderful friends, everyone that's loved you and prayed with you and and carried this journey with you. You say goodbye. He's he's gone by that day. I can't believe that he's gone by dinner time. Can you summarize what resilience felt like to you at that point of the journey? Had it changed since the early diagnosis days? Had it um, morphed at all? Was it still a continuation of the same? Can you remember back to kind of that initial moment of his departure and where you were with resilience and that relentless nature of continuing to live with whatever circumstance was brought to you? Mm -hmm. Well, it may not come to you on that particular day, but very quickly... I came to realize that he was not, and that we were still going to be a team. Even though he was coming at it from a different vantage point, we were still a team. And we had these four beautiful daughters that we wanted to have a wonderful life. and. We were going to continue making memories, and we did. Um, we had the funeral, and so many friends came unexpectedly. People came from far distances, and it was just, I felt so much love and support there. And we had church, like, the next day, and in our faith tradition, it was the first Sunday of the month. It was fast and testimony meeting, and I bore my testimony, and I just asked people to please not be afraid of me. Please don't be afraid to talk to me. I found out that, like, self-advertising, so to speak, or just I needed them to understand that I still wanted to talk about crib. And even if I cried, don't worry. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Because I cry anyway. But please, if you have a memory or a story or an experience that you want to share or a joke, or please talk to me and tell me, don't be afraid, because I need you. I can't do this alone. And I love you and appreciate all that you've done for me as a community. And so I really tried to be a self-advocate. I think that's a better term to use to let people know how they could help me. And one of the things that they could do to help me was to continue to share stories with me about Chris and let me talk to them and be okay with tears. I love this so much. (laughs) Michelle and I are just looking at each other going, yes, yes. yes." I don't know that I realized it the day after. I mean, Mm -hmm. Kim, your insight, and I think... Um, Kim, I, I I'm can four see. years out, and <laughs> I posted just a little memory clip a few days ago. My girlfriend said, we tell stories about John all the time in our family, and I said, I would love to hear them. Yeah. It has taken me four years to, to tell people, I need to hear your well, stories. I, oh, Kim, you are such an inspiration to so many, particularly in this widow world that none of us ever hoped to join 
and I know I've referenced it several times, this this group that you and some other widows helped put together to gather widows in the same physical space for conferences and counseling and just help. And then it's social media groups where people from all across the world can connect and share experiences and grief. And I have just written down the term self Advocate. I know. I Can you imagine that. how much more resilient as a human race we would be if we could learn how to advocate for ourselves? I think most of us, we advocate for our children. Mm-hmm. We might advocate for our job. We'll advocate for the cause that is so important to us. How often are we able to articulate what we need? Because Kim, most of us don't know. It, it, I remember well, it's being a overwhelmed. Very healthy. How can I help you? I have no yeah. idea. And here you are saying, I know you want to help me. Thank you. I love that you want to help me. Here's how to help me. Mm-hmm. I I love that. A self advocacy in resilience. Yeah, I didn't even Beautiful. know what I needed at all. I wouldn't have known what I to ask for. I couldn't process the question. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> Kim, so th- that is inspiring to be a self advocate to have. You know, we talk about resilience and the different studies that have been done or the different components and tools. But Kim, how many times have you mentioned the other people, the other people you relied on, the other people that helped you, the other people that loved? And for you to let those other people in, because yeah. sometimes when you're struggling with, with oh. grief or difficulty, it's really easy to say, I, I don't have any energy or emotional bandwidth to let someone love me or help me or support because I just need to hold mm-hmm. up. Yeah. But you have unlocked something so beautiful in connecting yourself and others to people. And we love you for it. Uh, anyone listening that might be a widow or know a widow that's looking for maybe a faith-based, compassionate group on social media to find it. The, the group is called LDS Widows and Widowers, right, uh, Kim? But you don't have to be uh-huh. a member of a, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to belong to that. You just unfortunately have to be a widow or widower. Yeah. And great compassion is found widows and widowers of all walks of life, all ages, young and old, children, no children, um, and a, a safe place to connect regardless of geographical location. And just say, hey, here's my experience. Can anyone just validate this? Or what do I do? Or how do I? But uh, we'd love to have you come back and share a little more about the journey where you, you took it from your personal journey to this now community journey that continues to bless the lives of, unfortunately, lots a of lot. widows and widowers. And the group just mm-hmm. keeps growing. And that's that's the truth about life. There's right. only... Right. But we can live, we can live, like you said, and we can live with cancer. We can live as widows. We can have happy, beautiful lives and be heartbroken. And it's not either or we can come together and help each other. But I'm going to go home and really think about self-advocacy. I've I've put a box around that on my notes because that's especially the insight you had to articulate that so soon after. I mean, that is a gift, Kim. That is absolutely a gift. Absolutely. Another thing, if I may just add that I do remember the feeling of, I don't know what I need. And so in my prayers, I would pray for people that they could listen to promptings and act on them because I didn't know what I needed. These are such great tips for resiliency because like that also would have never come to my mind. Right. And I think that that is beautiful because people do get promptings and they do get inspiration and that's how it works. Right. Do they have the courage to To act on it? Okay. I'm going to do that even if it feels uncomfortable or I love that so much. So many things. We, We definitely need to bring you back on. We are out of time today. We need to close. Thank you so much for coming on. If you 
are listening to this podcast and find value in it, please subscribe so you'll be notified as new episodes drop each week. And uh, give us a rating and a review. If you know someone who has a story of personal loss, trauma, difficulties that they've overcome, and they have exhibited resiliency in their path, tell them about the show. Have them contact us. We'd love to have share their story. You can send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. DM us. We will get back to you. We would love to hear your story. Yes. Thank you, Kim, for joining us. Thank you, Kellyanne, our awesome producer. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Take care, everybody. Have a great day. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.